So um, it's with a degree of sadness that I'm here this afternoon. Uh, but of course, it's always a great joy to be with you because we're looking at God's Word. So keep Colossians uh, chapter 3 open in front of you. Uh, we're going to look at that part of the Bible a little bit more deeply today. Uh, but what I really want us to notice is even though I trust that Huey did what uh, he was meant to do last week and looked at those verses in chapter 3, verses 15 to 17 with you, uh, we're going to look at them again. Because if your Bible is like my Bible, there's the mysterious heading between verse 17 and verse 18 that says, Rules for Christian Households. Now that's not part of the Bible. Uh, that was put in there somewhat helpfully, I guess, because the person was trying to distinguish between two uh, sections of what's going on. Uh, but key to what I want us to see is that where we're picking up today is exactly where we left off last week. Uh, we start with the amazing truth that we are united to Christ and we have a brand new life with him through faith. And as with the previous section, the big idea here is that the gospel creates a new shape to life. So just like last week we heard you were to put sin to death, and to put on new life in Christ-likeness, Paul's now going to show us exactly what Christ-likeness looks like when you take it home with you. So all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, now at this point I have to confess that my printer broke, and therefore we are going with the NIV, not the ESV version. So it's a little different from what you see in the Bible in front of you. Um, then please forgive me. But anyway, it says, chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And what are those things that are above? Verse 1 goes on to explain. They tell us that it is where God is seated, sorry, where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. And so this means that we're to put Jesus at the centre of our life. We're to get to know him and strive to entrust everything to him. You've been raised with Christ, and now your life centers on him. This is what Paul is saying is the key point in the second half of Colossians. You have been raised with Christ, and now your life is centered on him. And Paul follows that up with a wonderful summary in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That means everything in life should have Jesus in view in one way or another. Everything in life is now done recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. The teaching we saw last week is absolutely driven by this reality. You have been raised with Christ. So this is what your life looks like. And today, our passage carries it right on. This is all about having Christ as your Lord. Now this afternoon, as we start, there's two things that I want to say. And the first is that this passage is for Christians. Uh, this message today is for people who have already responded to the gospel. So if you're visiting church here at SBF today and you're not straight on whether you have your Saviour and Lord as Jesus Christ, then that is the great issue to wrestle with first. Do I have Jesus as my Lord and Saviour? That's what Paul has been spending the first half of this letter establishing, that there is no one with greater power or authority who is able to rescue you from the judgment to come than Jesus Christ. And yet with that said, today's teaching is something that Christians can be thankful for. When Paul talks about marriage, 
obedience of children, and then he raises the topic of slaves and masters. They're like three touch points in our culture. But Paul thinks that obedience to Jesus Christ is a cause for joy and thankfulness. I mean, is that how you think about obedience? A reason to give thanks to God that you're called to live this kind of risen with Christ life. And so we as Christians, we can look around the room and hope there are no visitors present because it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But we can move away from our embarrassment about what God's word says. And I want us to see today that Paul's words are something that we can be thankful for. In fact, the way Paul talks to husbands and wives and to children and fathers, to everyone in the household, we're going to see that he gives them an amazing kind of dignity that no culture 2,000 years ago or today can give a human being like the gospel gives. So, first of all, this is a message for Christians and the gospel and its obedience is a cause for thankfulness. Second thing that I want us to note before we get into the passage is what our backdrop is. Our God is a God of order. Do you remember how the Bible started? Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates, and at each step of creation, the words are peppered again and again. God said, and it was God, good. God saw, and it was good. Everything God creates is good. Our God is a God of good order. But then disaster happens in Genesis chapter 3. We, in our sin, disorder creation. We rebel against God and we buy that lie that we can live without him. And so we disorder creation. We turn things upside down and sin. Instead of listening to God and putting his words into practice, the very first humans and everyone onwards, they listen to one of the creatures that they're meant to rule over and they trust the snake instead of listening to God. This is a picture of disorder now. And so God is the God of good order, but since the fall we have... Look at that 9 out of 10 for annoying. So God is the God of order, but since the fall, since sin has entered in, we have disordered it. But now with the gospel, Paul says, with Christ's coming, there is a hope of reordering the world that we live in. In fact, the Colossians were commended in chapter 2, verse 5, where he describes them as having good order. When they meet, the way they speak to each other, the way they act, well, it's a good order. Why? Because they are living lives shaped by the gospel. That's the good order that Paul is talking about. And so today's passage is what does good order look like when you take the gospel home? And Paul teaches about three situations in life. He talks about marriage, with children, and with slaves and masters. And we'll get into each of those in a little bit detail uh, in a moment's time. But if you are not um, married, if you're not a parent, or you're not a slave or a master, I think that there are good things that we'll be learning from here. Some of them will be future planning. Some of the things will be for our current situation in life. And some will show us some very good principles for today. So we might have all sorts of questions as we look at these things, but these are good things that we will not be able to answer at every point today, but you'll be able to talk about them at growth group and over dinner today. But let's start with verse 18 and 19, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives, 
and do not be harsh with them. So our lives have been joined to God in Christ, and so that means we live lives of Christ-likeness. We've been united to him, and where he goes, we will follow. And as we learn to put off our old way of life and to clothe ourselves with new godly behaviours, then we're living out the life that God has given us in Christ. And Paul says, you know what? Your family can be part of this gospel-shaped life. There is no area that is more precious or more close and more intimate to you than what happens in your home. And Paul says, even in that sacred space, the gospel will speak to you and it will reshape your life. Christ-likeness. Even our families can be an expression of the gospel we have through Christ Jesus and the gracious salvation he gives us. And so when we have this in our heads, then what makes our passage today so absolutely amazing is that it's not a clash between the 21st century and the 1st century. It's not a clash between patriarchy and egalitarianism. That's not what's going on here. This is the gospel working out God's wonderful plan in individuals' lives and family lives. And it's a cause for thankfulness to God. That's what this is countercultural about. It means that Paul's teaching to us today is going to bump up against every single culture. It's not that Paul's message to you this afternoon comes from the first century, and now that we're more enlightened, we know that that is bad. Paul's message is from God, and it bumped into first century culture, it's going to bump into 21st century culture, because it is from God and it is his gospel. So let's look at it and try to think more carefully about what I mean by it's countercultural to every culture. And now, this is what the philosopher Aristotle wrote about family life. You might know Aristotle, you might not know of him. He was a great philosopher and thinker in the 3rd century BC. So 2,300 years ago, he wrote about what life was like. And now, for Aristotle, his teaching was still a very common thought in the everyday life of Paul's first century world. And this is what Aristotle wrote. In household management, there is three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves, another of a father and a third of a husband. The free man rules over the slave after another manner than the way the male rules over the female or a man rules over a child. Although the parts of the soul are present in any of them, They are present in different degrees. The slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it is without authority. And the child has, but it is immature. Now I know that that's a lot of words from an ancient philosopher, but I want you to notice three things about what Aristotle is saying. First of all, he says, the man is the central unit from which the whole family unit is considered. The second thing Aristotle says, the whole thing is described in terms of his rule over others, over his wife, over the child, over the slave. The third thing that Aristotle says is the reason the man is to rule over all of them is because they are inferior to him. But why don't you compare that to what Paul is saying in Colossians? First of all, it is not the man who is the central figure from which the whole family unit is considered. It is Jesus Christ. 
Bocha spent the middle of chapter 1, the middle of chapter 2, establishing beyond any doubt whatsoever that Christ in his risen state is greater than anyone else in the world. In fact, he not just created the world, but he sustains it now, and now he rules over it today. He is the center. It's not the man, it's not the woman, it's not the slave or the master or the child or the parent. It is Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Which is why four of the six instructions have explicit reference in them for the reasons why they give, why Paul gives particular instructions. Look back down at the passage, run your eyes through, look how many times the word Lord is mentioned. Can you count them up? I'll give you a little bit of a clue. It starts in verse 18, and by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 1, that word master in our English Bibles is also the word Lord. How many can you see? How many times does the word Lord appear? Not four, not five, six times. Paul is at pains to say that all of this is because Christ is Lord. He is the center. And second, Notice that nowhere in the passage is there instruction for the man to rule over anyone or anything. Not over his wife, not over his children, not over his slaves. The big point about Christ in Colossians is that it is Christ who is the ruler over all. And third, there is no suggestion anywhere here that the wife or the children or the slave are inferior to the man. Rather, each one is addressed right alongside the husbands and the fathers of the masters, clearly showing that each one is responsible morally before God and clearly capable of understanding and responding to the Lordship of Christ. There's no thought whatsoever of inferiority, a lack of deliberative abilities. Paul thinks that I can even speak to little children and they will get it. Not a sign of inferiority anywhere. And so you see our passage bumps up against Paul's culture and our culture because this is a word from God and our world lives when it by the lie that God has nothing to say to us. So what does it look like in practice? Look again at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for the Lord. And Notice there that it's the wives and husbands that Paul's addressing and not women and men in general. He's talking about how a wife relates to one particular man, her husband, and how a husband relates to one particular woman, his wife. And since the gospel is transforming our lives in light of Christ being our Lord, marriage relationships look very different when they're based on the gospel to what we see around us today. Today we see the word Submission as a highly suspect word. I would begin, begin to imagine something out of a 1950s drama, uh, perhaps stuck at home, never party to any significant decision, short on dignity with the husband, acting like a little king in his corner of suburbia. But that is not the picture in Colossians. For we Christians, the very first thing to notice is that submission is part of the Christian life. Submission is not a dirty word. The Christian life is full of submission. So in Romans chapter 13, we said to submit to our government. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're to submit to one another. In Hebrews 13, we're to submit to our church leaders, their 
James 4, we're to submit to God. Submission is not foreign to the Christian life. In fact, as Christians, we're all submitting in one relational context or another. And that's what submission is. Submission is voluntarily humbling yourself. And this means we're saying, well, I'll humble myself in this relationship because of Jesus. I will voluntarily humble myself because God has set this order in this particular relational context. And this is why it is fitting in the Lord for a wife to submit to the husband. And right from the beginning of God's story, right back in Genesis chapter 2, who made us? God did. And he made us men and women. He made us identical in value before him, but not identical in role. We have slightly different roles as men and women. And when God made us, he placed an order on us in marriage, and he says that this is fitting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul's writing about here is not some kind of face-saving, phenomena-saving thing. Wives, submit to your husbands just because it's, it's a terrible world and we have to come up with the best we can. He's saying this is what God had planned from the beginning. And the gospel is reversing the terrible effects of sin, even in our marriages, the wives, because it's fitting in the Lord. Submit to your husbands. You're doing something incredibly cross-cultural. You're being part of the gospel, reordering the fallen world as you voluntarily submit to your husband. Now, please don't hear this wrong. Uh, This is something that you are choosing to do in Jesus. This is most certainly not blind obedience to a sinful husband. And this is not husbands making their wives submit. That's definitely not their role. But as one who has submitted to Christ, you voluntarily, humbly submit yourself to your husband's love. So make sure that you're really clear on what the Bible is saying. This is not a call to be a doormat. There is nothing... Godly in submitting to a husband who asks you to sin as he lords it over you. That's not the picture of godliness that Paul's presenting us with. Wives are called to do what is fitting in the law. In marriage, the New Testament has plenty of room for submission that involves giving wise advice, giving a necessary prod or reminder, using gifts and skills and strengths, being fully involved in making decisions and yet encouraging a husband to bear responsibility for what goes on in their marriage relationship and even in their broader family life. Now, I'm a little hesitant to give too many concrete examples of what this looks like, um, partly because husband and wives are slightly different. Each family is different from one to another. Uh, So dynamics are slightly different, but the same broad pattern applies. A wife submits to her husband's godly love. And we had question time at church this morning. And one of the questions that I was asked was to just illustrate that. So it took a little bit from out there in the general principle world into the everyday concrete realm. So two things uh, that go on in my family life. I'm sure that my wife, Belinda, would absolutely love to have each of our family holidays to a place near the beach. Uh, But I get terribly bored after three days and I want to go exploring places. So my picture of holidays and Belinda's picture of holidays is different. Uh, But what we both want is for our family to spend time together and have a good time. And from those strong relationships, 
to be able to talk about our faith in Christ as we go down the road. Now, for Linda could dig her heels in. Um, I could be so ignorant as to not recognise what kind of holidays my wife likes the most. But what we do is that as my wife tells me what she would like to do for her holidays, and I talk about it with her, we're trying to think through how can we honour God by me living up to my responsibilities and leading my wife in Godness. Because as Ephesians 5 says, my core concern is to see her standing before Jesus on the last day as one of those people who are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. What my mind should be focused on. So don't get me wrong, it's not about who gets to make decisions. It's about the fact that we're working it out together and we have the same priority, but I have a responsibility before God to be the one who makes sure we are staying on the path of godliness and doing what is good to keep us following Christ. Uh, more briefly, as a husband, one of my key roles is to be um, reinitiating relationships so what I mean by that is sometimes um, Belinda and I might have a difference of opinion and it is my responsibility in the family life to be the key relationship restoration person. And so I can tell that there's sometimes, uh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. There are moments when with hindsight I can see that I've tried to go to Belinda to um, start to mend the fences as it were. I can see that's important. Belinda, she might be thinking, I need a little bit more time, but she can see what I'm trying to do is good in Christ. So she humbly puts herself under my leadership. Following your husband's uh, loving service. We can talk more about that um, later if that's what you'd like. You can always send me an email. Even after I finish being a pastor at this church, if you email me, I will respond. But let's tie it together by taking it back to the key thing. Jesus is Lord. The wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And let's turn to the other side of the relationship and hear what God has to say uh, to Christian husbands. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's interesting there, isn't it? Paul commands love. This isn't talking about having nice romantic feelings, as enjoyable and important as they might be. Uh, but this goes further and deeper than that. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, the standard for a husband's love is Jesus. That is a great and costly love that saw him go and lay down his life. And so a husband is to lay down his life with his wife. Love is about self-sacrificial service. Love means giving up on being on about what suits you. Love is living your life for the good of your wife, spiritually speaking. Asking yourself, what would be good for her walk in Christ? How can I lovingly and carefully help her grow in Christ? Love is reordering our relationships based on the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. And the words about not being harsh, I think they're a wonderful indication of how husbands are to love their wives. Husbands are to think about the times, sorry, husbands, think about the times when we get critical or demanding. Now, how often is this driven by the fact that you might not be getting your own way or because you feel like you've been slighted in some way? Paul sees Christian husbands and he knows that sin still touches us. And so he is showing us the answer. The laying down, how to lay down your life is not to say, 
she'll be right. I think it'll turn out fine. But to actually stand up and take responsibility and actively be loving and serving your wife. Jesus is Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now I know from my many visits over the nearly last four after the four last four years nearly, uh, there are lots of people at SBF who are not married. Uh, you might be going out, and I sometimes hear people say, I just want to be able to love and serve the person that I'm going out with. But I think it's important to remember that you are just dating. And it's not till death do you part, until you say those words on your wedding day. Dating is different from being married. Certainly, you want to be godly in your relationship at every point. And you want to be the kind of man who is willing to lay down his life for another person. But remember, these are words to husbands first. And so your dating relationship, it might be unhelpful to start acting in every way like you're going out. That might lead to other problems. Now, I've tried to present a positive focus of what Paul is saying. He wants us to lift up our eyes to the risen Jesus and see that we can live a godly life in marriage. But I know that we live in a disordered and fallen world, and so we have lots of questions. So there's just one thing that I want to mention before we move on from marriage, um, and that is to say that Christians are totally against domestic violence. There are times in history when it should have been common knowledge that Christians are against domestic violence. The Bible, the Gospel, Jesus, our Father in heaven, they are all totally against that kind of uh, domineering or abusive thing that comes with domestic violence. But there's no way and no place for it. So I don't think that we can say that this pattern where Paul says wives submit to your husbands in any way justifies mistreating your wife. But sinners can create and commit this kind of sin. And anyone who calls themselves Christians and falls into this sin needs to repent and get help and tell someone so that it comes out into the light. Remember, sin thrives in the darkness. It needs to be exposed. And so I say, if anyone is struggling with this kind of thing, can you see it in your own life? or perhaps in the life of your parents, then it needs to be dealt with. And anyone who is subject to domestic violence, you do not have to remain in that situation. You are free to find a safe place. Go to a trusted person and they will help you take steps for safety. But we also need to be wise to the world. Because there are many accusations against what the Bible says, that it is supportive of abuse. That is far from what we're hearing Paul say today. Now we need to affirm the Bible is against domestic violence. We also need to be praying for wisdom so that we can address this kind of thing when it comes up in conversation with our friends. Open up the Bible and show them that that is far from what Paul and the entire gospel is talking about. And now Paul... Uh, he moves from married life to family life more wide, widely. And he tells us that Jesus is Lord in the relationships between parents and children. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
And now it's tempting to think about all the times when this may not be the best thing to do. And doubtless there might be times when the command does not apply, uh, but we must be careful not to blunt the force of what's said here. The big pattern is for children to obey their parents in what they have been asked to do and to avoid what has been forbidden or would clearly be against their wishes. And this means being part of the life that your parents have set up for you, not constantly testing how serious they are about a particular issue or doing what they ask but making sure everyone knows that you just do not like it. This is a big deal because it is ultimately about pleasing Jesus. And pleasing Jesus is exactly what Paul prays for back in chapter 1. This is part of what it looks like for the power of the resurrection to be at work in the life of a child. Now the word that Paul is using here for child, I think is specifically addressing younger children. Hands up if you're over 12 years of age. Okay, that's most of you. I can see some of you didn't put up your hand. Um, as you get to a teenager and then a young adult in your 20s, inevitably you get more independence, don't you? And maybe there's more flexibility in making decisions. Perhaps your parents include you in more discussions about how the family life is going to go. But it doesn't change. We saw just a few weeks ago when we looked at the fifth commandment where Paul says, honour your mother and father, that your basic attitude towards your parents all through life is one that is inclined to pleasing the Lord and doing what is good and right by your parents rather than trying to manipulate them or trying to get stuff out of them or trying to squeeze as many exceptions as possible but not helping or serving them. Now my parents live in Queensland. Uh, they are in their late 70s. I'm in my 40s. I have my own family and my own household. But there's still something in my relationship with my parents that means that I need to think about how I can be honouring them even though I am no longer a small eight-year-old child. My relationship with my parents never ends, but it does change. Honouring them will look like it's different. Now I'm blessed with parents who don't call me up and tell me how to spend my money, but just say I did have that kind of parent. I'm in my 40s and they're still telling me, you've got this money, why don't you buy a house? Whatever it is the parents say to their children. How did they raise you to be someone to think for themselves? How are you going to use the gospel to honour them in your conversations? And as you explain to them why you're doing what you're doing, figuring out how, they, how you can be serving them. Children are meant to honour their parents. Now as a father, I find myself tempted to put all the focus on verse 20, uh, but there are crucial words in verse uh, 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Now, I think this is relevant for both parents, but Paul addresses fathers because of their specific role within the household. It's the father who bears final responsibility for training and disciplining the children. And so if you're a dad or if you're thinking about being a dad in the future, remember this, the buck stops with you. And since this command is an absolutely wonderful counterpoint to the command of obedience, children should obey and this involves training and discipline. So parents, how careful are we to be in that? We've got different personalities. Children are different. Parents are different. Families have their own little quirks and routines. So how this works from family to family, probably going to look a little bit different. 
But can you imagine the sort of thing that causes frustration and bitterness in children? Being harsh, having unreasonable expectations, never giving encouragement, never showing obvious signs of affection, being overly critical. I remember when I was in year 11, one of my friends was one of the smartest kids in school. She got a maths test back of 98%. And I thought that was a fantastic part. But she told me uh, that when she took it home to her dad and said, I got 98%, he said, what happened to the other 2%? Dads have such power in the words they use. And then there's shifting standards, hypocrisy, not keeping your word, using your height, your size, your deep voice to be intimidating. Where do all these things come from but from our own self-centeredness? Almost always we speak and act from our personal frustration or our own personal disappointment. And yet Paul says, what is my job as a parent? It's not pleasing myself. It is not getting family life the way that suits me. It is to encourage my children to live with Jesus as Lord. Now, I remember when I was about 12 years old, I was playing with some other children. Uh, one of the boys got incredibly angry at his brother, and he picked up the cricket stump from out of the ground and he threw it at his brother. Hopefully, uh, he was hoping to impale him, I suspect. And then when his dad asked him to stop, he went to another level and he was just yelling abuse at his dad. And the dad, what he did next, I will never forget. I remember how patient he was. I remember how he came over and he knelt down next to his son. He didn't yell at him. He didn't shame him. He talked quietly with him. And the dad explained that the boy's behavior was unacceptable. He laid out the consequences of what was going on. But he did it very patiently and very lovingly. Now that is a great example of a father who wasn't shirking his responsibility in disciplining and training. He was giving a great example of what it means to not pity your son. There could have been a hundred ways that that unfolded. He took the time to get up from his seat and go and have a quiet word with his son in a manner in which his son would be able to hear and process what was going on. It was good at discipline and training. Jesus is Lord. Children, obey your parents. Parents, not in pity. Now, in verse 22, Paul reminds us that Jesus is also Lord in work. And I guess the first thing that goes through my head when I get to verse 22 is, what am I going to do with these commands? We know that slavery is a terrible evil. So what on earth is Paul doing here? He doesn't say slavery is awful. And if we work our way through this issue, um, what do we do when we discover that today is a very different time from back? 2,000 years ago. Now, as we move forward, there are two things that I'd like to keep in mind. First of all, when we hear slavery, we think of 19th century uh, American slavery or sex trafficking today. Uh, but first century Roman slavery was not like that. It wasn't desirable. You didn't want to be a slave. And in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are a slave and you can get your freedom, then take it up. But... Uh, we're not to have that kind of 19th century American picture of slavery in our head. Second, although Paul mentions slavery without advocating some kind of abolition movement, uh, there is 
some important sense in which the gospel undermines slavery as an institution. Just look at the very first thing we see in verse 22. What does Paul do? He says, slaves. He is speaking to slaves. He gives slaves status, what Christ has done. Back in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says there's no slave and no free in Christ. It's not that there's distinctions that don't exist in the world, but before God, these distinctions don't count. God loves the slave and the master. And to every believer, whatever their situation in life, Jesus gives an inheritance. So slaves stand to finish with something truly wonderful. So just think about it. A slave's job would have been doing the most menial tasks in the household. And yet Paul seems to think that the slave is worth talking to. And then he says, the slave has a job that is worth doing well. Work at it with all your heart, he says in verse 23. And he's also relativizing the master's authority. No longer is the master the big one in the household. The cross means that Jesus is Lord and all the masters need to remember that. In fact, in another letter, when Paul writes to a man called Philemon, he says that the master and the slave are brothers. The gospel undermines slavery in all kinds of ways. And I think that leads into the third thing that I want to say about slavery in this passage. In the first century, the gospel has only just began to proclaim, be proclaimed for the first time. And so the gospel has only just begun to do its powerful work of reordering and reshaping our lives and our culture and society. It's only with 2,000 years of the gospel saying, there's no distinction between master and slave. Slaves have equal dignity and you're to treat them right. In fact, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, take it. And master, you have a slave, treat him like a brother. It's only because of 2,000 years of the gospel being at work in our world that we can say and point at slavery, it is an awful thing. This would have never occurred. To anyone. It's like everyone wanted a slave. Why would I clean the bathrooms myself? I could just pick up a slave and get them to do it for me. And so Paul is writing in a way that will make sense. He's making an argument so that people who only think slavery is good will comprehend it. And so the gospel is undermining slavery. It's been proclaimed and it's beginning to reorder the world. So these few verses here, they have given us the fruit of our attitudes towards slavery today. So what is one more thing that I want to take, or I think that we can take out of this? It means we may not be a slave. There may not be slaves and masters in 21st century Australia, but what Paul is saying is that no matter how menial your job, there is something rewarding in it because you are working for the Lord. You can be diligent in it because the Lord is watching. And if you are a master, well, then remember that you too have a judge who watches you. And now when I first left the university, university, I had a job in an open plan office and inevitably that meant there was plenty of conversation and it was a very social place. Uh, but the moment the managing director walked through, uh, then coffee cups would go down, eyes would be glued to the screen, conversation would stop and you'd hear that sort of click-clack as people were sending fast emails. But Paul says, there is to be no difference between the way you work when the boss is there 
when he's not there. Work can be rewarding no matter how meaningless it is. Work is to be done diligently, whether your master or boss is in the room or not. Why? Well, verse 23, we work at it with all our hearts. And we do it knowing that from the Lord, verse 24, we will receive an inheritance as reward because we are serving the Lord Christ. We may not be slaves or masters, but we have the same Lord. The same attitude is to permeate who we are. Now I'm conscious of the time, so we might stop there. Jesus is Lord, and let's pray that we live our Christ-like lives before him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that your word to us is an amazing word, uh, that it is a cause for thankfulness and joy. And so we pray uh, from chapter 3, verse 13, that whatever we do, whether it is in word or deed, we ask that you would give us the wisdom and strength to do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to you through him. Father, we know that obedience is not always easy, and that it is nearly always countercultural. Please help us to obey Christ. We know that He is our loving Lord and Savior, and what He asks us for is for our good in this life and our spiritual and eternal good, your eternal glory. So we ask that you would help us be obedient today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives with joyful hearts before you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.